I think there is business leadership. I think Walmart, who doesn't get much credit for it, has been doing this for 15 years. Google certainly has, Microsoft has. I think the leadership is there. We need to encourage them to move forward. And they can influence public policy thinkers in a way that perhaps the rest of us can't. Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm John Fitterson, co-founder and chief executive of Aurora. And we have a very special guest on the show today. She's done just about everything you can do in US energy. I'll be speaking with a former commissioner at FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, She was appointed by George W. Bush. I'll be speaking to a former chair of California's PG&E Corp. uh, And she was appointed there at a critical time in the organization's history after the 2017 and 2018 wildfires. She's also been director of a number of enormous companies in the energy sector, including uh, British company National Grid, uh, Spectra Energy Partners, which was acquired for uh, close to $30 billion, uh, and a collection of other organizations. Uh, My guest on the show is Nora Mead Brownell, founder of SB Energy Solutions. Welcome, Nora. Thank you, John. I'm thrilled to be here. Delighted to have you. Can I start with a question about SB Energy Solutions, which, as I can, as I see it, I think is an area is is an organisation you spend a reasonable amount of your time on at the moment, and you describe that as a women-owned business on the website. Why is that the most relevant thing? Do you think to bring out about SB Energy Solutions? And and second question is, do you see barriers to women entering the energy sector at present still? Yes, well, I felt it was important to add uh, a diverse voice to the energy sector. Um, I think this is true both in the U.S. and Europe as well, although I think Europe does a better job. Um, The industry tends to be populated uh, by men, largely because it's been an engineering organization and there are more male engineers. But I think we've all realized that uh, diverse voices bring new perspective, add substance, add a different point of view that adds value, whether it's in the boardroom or whether it's in the consultancy practice. Is it, are there barriers to entry? Yes, of course there are. People like to work with people who look like them. There's lots of history that suggests that. So when you come in with looking different, sounding different, acting different, sometimes that's hard for people to accept. Sometimes people are trying to choose diverse businesses because they want to check a box. That becomes pretty obvious. Uh, We had a rule, it was called the PETA rule, and I I can give you uh, the definition, which is a pain in the ass tax. Uh, And after a while, if we started to see that, we added a PETA tax, and it sometimes worked. Uh, It was a good discipline because we were honest with people about that. Mm -hmm. So you would you would sort of say we we if it's a male or if it's someone that doesn't broaden our diversity, 
then we give that a penalty or something like that. Is, is, was that the premise? Well, if, if it's people chose who chose not to treat us with respect. Um, yeah, got it. We, we added that task and, and, and said that. Also, also fired some clients, some pretty big ones, um, not necessarily because they weren't treating us with respect, but because we felt that we were there just to check the box and they didn't really want to hear our point of view. So that's fine. You know, everybody has choices, but we have choices as well. And it's one that's come up a few times in the podcast of the power sector was engineers and the oil and gas sector was engineers. And there was a gender and, and people seem quite in, a, in, in what seems like a reasonably complicated, you know, so, sociological problem to say, actually a lot of this was, the, the pool of candidates that were going into this 30 years ago were just were, were engineers and, and that was that was where a lot of this imbalance started. Where did you say, so, I mean, you've been in the industry for, for decades. Where do you draw inspiration from in your early career? Where, where, did role models exist or, or did you have to look outside the energy sector? Uh, I had to look outside the energy sector and actually I didn't grow up in to, to the energy sector. I was recruited uh, by Governor Tom Ridge when they were restructuring in Pennsylvania. I'd actually been in a variety of jobs. My family says perhaps I have ADHD or I can't hold a job. Uh, I'd been in public broadcasting. I'd been in banking. Uh, I'd worked in a governor's office in Pennsylvania. And as I said, was recruited after our bank was bought um, to come help uh, restructure the Pennsylvania energy sector, um, which was which was an incredible leap of faith on behalf of the governor because I knew literally nothing about the utility sector. Uh, but as my former boss, who was the chairman of the bank, said, "Follow the money, follow the money, follow mm -hmm. the money," and that's exactly what I did. But. I had wonderful mentors all the way along the line. Um, my first inspiration was really my mother who did not work and always wanted to work. We were, they were second generation uh, from Irish immigrants. And I think part of the badge of honor was that women didn't work. So I was the first woman in my generation ever to have a job. At family meetings, they would say, she's the one who works. Uh, so. <laughs> That, that was, it. you know, she said, you know, raising a family is fun, staying at home is fun, but it's pretty boring after a while. I wish I had a job. Yeah. So that was my first. And then along the way, um, and I worked largely in places, politics, certainly there were no women. Banking, there were very few women. But I had wonderful mentors along the way who just pushed me beyond places that I thought I could do. And I think that's what good mentors do. They're honest with you about what where you are and where you need to get to and that was really helpful presumably you had mentors of both genders um is there something that a female mentor you know can do that a male mentor doesn't do you, do you think there's an importance of that in in in, in mentoring well to be candid with you, um, I didn't really have any female mentors because okay. I'm 106 years old and at a time that I was working <laughs> There were, there were very few peers. Um, so I was lucky to have men who actually cared about women, understood. One of my bosses had five daughters. He said, that's, I learned that every night at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I do think for some people, it's more comfortable to have someone of their own gender. They can talk about things that you can't talk about. When I speak to 
young women's groups, and, and I do both women and men, but when I speak to young women's groups, they, they raise questions. They're more likely to talk about work workplace and life balance issues. They're, how do you raise children under these circumstances? The kinds of things that um, I, I think men would love to ask, uh, but are probably afraid to ask. So um, I, think, I think it is helpful. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Um, one other interesting aspect of your career is you, you spent time both sides of the pond. So you're a, you're a, you're a director at National Grid. You've seen how other electricity markets work. I suppose you mentioned Pennsylvania. You know the US is a is a continent, not a. You know there are a lot, there are multiple multiple markets. I suppose in many ways. How how well do you think? Like reflecting on the UK, where you've got basically very centralised government, at least for now. Um, you know, the, the Scottish may have a, have a different view of where that's where that's going, but you've got quite centralised government. Whereas in the US, you've got FERC, you've got states, you've got all of these types of things. Do, do you think the US is getting the balance between federal and state responsibility right, or, or could it do better? Oh, it could do it could do a lot better. Uh, I mean, we really we really have fifty different states. The the rules, mm. particularly in the electricity sector, they're better in the pipeline sector. The, the rules are clear in terms of who has authority over what, although that's becoming a little bit muddled um, because of some court decisions. But it's much, much, much more complicated uh, in the U.S. Uh, because of the lack of clarity, because a lot of utilities who didn't want to change and don't want to go through this very much needed and belated transition um, have used the state federal tensions uh, in order to delay decisions. So when we came into FERC, our directive uh, from the president who appointed us was to bring wholesale markets uh, throughout the United States. The southern uh, states don't want that, have a pretty unique relationship. Most of their state regulators are elected uh, and they wanted to protect their monopoly. They didn't want to restructure and they didn't want to open Kimona on how they were managing their grid. So they, they fought tooth and nail and really leveraged that state versus federal issue uh, in order to delay going to wholesale markets. They're now talking about it 20 years later. So yeah. um, I, I think we may see change, but and, and the, frankly, it's been exacerbated in the last three or four years uh, by the lack of federal leadership on issues like climate change, on issues like infrastructure buildup and upgrades. So we've, we, we created or exacerbated what was not a very good situation. And it's frankly the reason we're so far behind in their energy transition that uh, Europe has really undergone in a more rapid way. And frankly, in many cases, more sensibly. I was struck when I started learning about US markets. As you know, there's, you know, Texas isn't even synchronized to the rest of the US grid. You know, in Europe, it's sort of Ukraine isn't synchronized to the rest of the grid. But, but the, <laughs> But the rest of it is, and then I'm, and then there's just swathes of the country where there there is no there are no prices. It, it's just it, it's it's I suppose it's elected people deciding how high customer bills should be, but um, yeah, I found that strike. You said gas was simpler. Did is part of that that there was sort of harmonisation, and was it a bigger role for the bigger role for FERC that solved gas's problems, or was it about 
collaboration between states? No, that was in in that case. It was about I think the the country realizing certainly public policy leaders realizing that the pipeline infrastructure system and oversight just wasn't working. So they yeah. restructured in the 70s and early 80s by the time the court cases went through. So the pipeline business is a delivery business. That It's very straightforward. Uh, it's not an integrated uh, program where you have competing interests. So in the utility side, where you have vertically integrated utilities in the US, uh, generation earns you a lot more money. Um, so people have focused on generation and use their transmission to prevent other generating assets from getting online. So yeah. the authority for FERC was much more straightforward when they said to the pipelines, you're in the delivery business and that's the business you're in. It wasn't as clear on the electric utility side and still isn't, which is why you see these endless court battles going on. And, and it's been unfortunately very, very expensive. It's worked to the detriment of customers and it's the reason we have insufficient wires infrastructure, transmission and distribution that could more effectively, for example, deliver clean energy from uh, the Midwest to the West or from parts yeah. of the West to California. Yeah. One of my guests on the show, a chap called Paul Simshauser, we were talking about the history of privatization. And it's not just a US phenomenon. I mean, obviously, Europe has gone further and, and faster in terms of liberalization, but it just the power sector seems to be whether I don't know, maybe it's political sensitivity, you know, in, in Australia, there were certain states that privatized in others, generation assets are still owned by by the states competing in the market in Germany, there's, you know, a couple of hundred municipal utilities that are yes. subscale, but but, yes. you know, local government wants to hang on to, you know, a 40 megawatt, a 40 megawatt open cycle plant for some reason. Do you have a, do you have a theory on why? I mean, do we, I, I think and what Paul would say was in some, we just did a bad job of selling privatization in some cases. And he cited California and said, look, this, you know, this didn't look like it was working for customers and probably slowed down the whole agenda 20 years ago and Enron and blackouts and things. And I think there were similar experiences in the UK. What, what makes it so hard to privatize and bring markets into the, into the power sector? So I think you've hit upon a really, really critical aspect that people don't often talk about. And that is both, in Europe and in the US, perhaps more so in the US, there is an almost incestuous relationship between politics and the industry. And frankly, it's been encouraged, I think, over time by both the businesses and the politicians. So California is a, is a particularly good example because they treat the utility as a tool for making policy decisions and inserting themselves and frankly, uh, putting on hidden taxes, what I call hidden taxes, and this is true everywhere. Now, when you have a public franchise and a public monopoly, as you do, there are certain responsibilities. We had that in banking when we were obligated to do a better job of serving low and low income and diverse communities. We understood that. 
and accepted it responsibly, but also balanced our fiduciary responsibility as well. And that was easy to do. California doesn't treat the utilities as a business. It treats it, as I said, as a tool. As a consequence, for example, they imposed on the utilities balance sheet uh, the obligation to buy a lot of overpriced green energy. Well, there are lots of ways to go green, and there's lots of ways to get market forces to help you do that. Imposing your government solution on a private business is probably the least efficient and most expensive. And when PG&E went into bankruptcy, that neither the commission nor the governor's office would let them cancel those contracts for or renegotiate those contracts for lower priced energy because they didn't want to send a signal to the green community. Well, those contracts are with very well-financed large companies who could well have afforded a renegotiation. And in yeah. the end, the customers would have gotten green energy at a, at a significant reduction. So I think it's become all too convenient and we need more transparency about those relationships uh, in order to make the transition more effective and more business driven. And more yeah. business driven, in fact, does not mean necessarily that the customer is ill served. On the contrary, in my opinion, competitive markets serve the customer far more efficiently than government dominated faux businesses. Yeah. It's interesting the point you make. And I, it seems to me like a lot of the problems with privatizer, you know, relate to government, government not being able to credibly commit to being sensible in a sense. So, so the example you, you, you have, which is, you know, suddenly they want to buy green power. I mean, I think one of the tools by which governments have got around that is green banks, whether, you know, in Australia, you've got the CEFC yes. in the UK, you've got the, that was the green investment bank, the Macquarie board, they're going to start a new one. And it's sort of, okay, we accept that government is going to want to do its own projects. If a government comes into power and it wants wind farms, it needs to be able to procure them directly and get it done because that's what politicians commit to. Um, but you can do that outside the market. And, and you know, if, if you know what government's failing is going to be and that it can't help itself but to directly intervene, you can at least create a, a governance system where you're insulated from that. And I think these green banks are a good way. In essence, my view is they're a good way of, of letting government commit to do things quickly, get them done, but still preserve the, the market. I think, I mean, capacity markets, I think, are another really good example. I mean, in a textbook, um, energy-only markets, at work just as well but in practice government can't help itself but intervene when it looks like the lights are going to go out which kind of ruins it ruins it for every everyone i think there is this i think we need to get some, you know the theory of privatization was there but my my sense is one of the lessons of the last couple of decades is we've just got to work out what government can't you know it works in theory can't we got to work out what government in all contexts can't help but do uh, to undermine the market and, and work out how we can insulate ourselves from that and government needs to be consistent. So a good example happened in Canada 20 years ago. So Canada restructured, they created uh, pretty healthy retail markets, particularly in Ontario, uh, but prices started to go up because gas prices were go going up. Yeah. Uh, government didn't think customers would tolerate that. And literally just as the prices were going down and stabilizing, 
the government came in, closed down the retail market, massive disruption in terms of investments, and basically moved the high-priced power and the higher cost as a consequence of their intervention to taxes. So again, we need more transparency on who's paying for what, and that's one of the challenges. Not unlike healthcare, customers have no idea what they're buying, and they have no visibility into the price at the time they're buying it. Yeah. Texas, Texas, on the other hand, is a classic example, and it doesn't. It isn't just to do with the fact that they're not FERC regulated. It has to do with the fact that they made a policy commitment. Uh, then Governor Bush wanted to restructure, saw the inefficiencies of the market. They took the political risk of basically getting the companies into the delivery business or the generation business. They created rules that allowed real comp competitors to come in. And there is incredible price transparency. And at any given moment, as a retail customer, you can go online and get 15 or 20 offers in terms of pricing. So, so that to me is a real market and they've stuck with it. They don't intervene every time something bad happens because yeah. markets have ups and markets have downs. Retail, there's a way to insulate the poorest and the most vulnerable customers without dramatically putting the hand of government on the scale for one solution or another. Yeah, that's another great example. And I mean, both the UK and Australia recently in response to rising, and again, it was fossil, you know, it, this is not to, to an extent, you know, the competition authority was called in in the UK in Australia, price caps imposed, it, you know, it had nothing to do with, well, ha people have different views on history, but it had very little to do with retail, you know, retailers price gouging and everything to do with the cost of fossil fuels and the cost of power, basically. Um, but someone needs to get blamed. And in both contexts, a, a, a price ceiling was introduced in the market, which, um, yeah, which, which, which again, under, undermines, undermines competition in some, in some senses. Can I, can I say what you talked about? Um, you briefly talked about fiduciary duty um, of, of utilities in the context of California. Um, you've, I don't know anyone who's sat on more boards of, of utility companies than, than you have. Do you think the risks that a board needs to be aware of now are different than the ones two decades ago? And, and how have they evolved? Absolutely. Uh, the risks are, are greater today than they ever have been before. Whether it's, whether it's California or the Northeast, you have the impacts of climate change. You have extreme, unpredictable weather events that require significant investment in new technologies, if you're gonna do it right, and infrastructure that is able to withstand extremes of weather. And that's, that's true everywhere. Uh, and yet, that's gonna drive some costs in the end I think those investments solve for multiple problems, so I think cost should not be as big an issue. But it's hard to be prepared uh, for the impacts of climate change in a way that allows you to effectively do long-term planning. Um, but then you have other issues. You have, again, government intervention in the most bizarre and ineffective ways. You've got cybersecurity issues, which keep you up if, if wildfires and storms don't cyber issues will. 
you have increased social responsibility and you see a focus on affordability, I think, again, that's a, that's a false uh, political goal. Affordability is having a safe, efficient, resilient system and figuring out a way to make sure that it gets paid for and that you can attract long-term capital. And that's where the fiduciary responsibility comes in. People don't realize how capital intensive this business is. And if we can't attract the long-term capital that we need, the costs go up precipitously. And you see that when there's massive, massive government intervention or something unpredictable, it drives away cheap capital. And that really is what the business model is all about, is attracting cheap capital. Mm. I think on the positive side, if one chooses to take advantage of it, there are technology changes that are forcing the industry to do business differently. But those same technology changes, and again, the same thing is happening in healthcare, change the business model, but allow it to be in the long term far more efficient in delivering both affordable and clean energy in a way that reduces greenhouse gas emissions, which is obviously part of our newer responsibilities. So yeah. Yeah, it's a whole different world and I don't even get into the activist shareholder and compensation issues and, and all of the th other things that boards deal with every day. Yeah. Okay. So it's a tougher, it's a tougher gig now. Are, are you seeing, have you, I mean, it's hard to estimate these things. Do you see a kind of higher cost of capital for, for utilities in the, in the US now than, than there was two, two decades ago? I suppose cost of capital has declined in general across the period. Do you think the it, utility sector is perceived as being riskier than it was? Oh, it definitely is in it definitely is in certain areas. Um, I, I think there's been a lot written in California about whether uh, the the commitment to investor-owned utilities uh, is serious or whether they really do want government-owned utilities. And part of that has to do with some really really failed regulatory policies. One of which. Um, one government policy is something called inverse condemnation, where the utility is responsible for any damage caused by wildfires due to its equipment, um, whether negligence is proven or not. So in, in all other countries that I'm aware of and, and all other states, there's a negligence protection. Um, uh, but in this case, um, utilities are responsible no matter what. Well. Given, given the storms that you saw early in the summer and then are continuing now, one, it's, it's going to be difficult to prove whether there's been negligence. But secondly, uh, the, the it, utility is perceived to be on the hook and the regulatory compact is broken. And so there's a very punitive kind of an attitude. Uh, so, yeah, I think they are driving up capital and will continue to do so. But a lot of that is situational. Mm. So on, on the situational ones, can we talk about PG&E in particular? And in a sense, my take, at least, I, I haven't followed this closely, you know, you were there to clean, in a sense to clean up the mess. Um, yeah. uh, they, they'd obviously had some pretty big liabilities as a result of wildfires, um, people had died, uh, those, those types of things. Was it, what caused, and PG&E, I think, had gone bust 20 years before as, as well at one point. What, was it about bad, you know, is it bad luck? Is it, is it um, you know, we'd never seen wildfires like that before? Was it decisions that people made along the way? What, what caused 
this disaster at PG&E? I think there are a number of factors and the bankruptcies were very different, but I think there, I'll emphasize the, the number of factors. So, and I wasn't there, so I, I don't, it's hard for me to judge, mm. but my take is there was inadequate leadership within the company for probably 20 years. So it was broken, bad business processes, uh, lack of data, a problem, huge, huge uh, issues with union contracts. Unions dominate in California, yeah. but but agreements that cause safety problems. Uh, so there, there was definitely yeah. the company was broken. Uh, there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done, but you add on to that, as I've talked about, a very invasive uh, government a regulatory system that by the governor's own admission of his blue ribbon commission is broken by uncertainty by abuse of the utility as a as a political tool as opposed to a business and then you add on to that the impact of climate change and i want to emphasize that because everyone says it's all about climate change we believe in climate change but you have to manage the impact. Okay, we all believe in climate yeah. change, well, except for our president and a few other tiny heads, but uh, we all believe in climate change, but okay, what is the impact? The impact is that you have fire season that now lasts seven or eight months as opposed to three. You have yeah. very unpredictable weather patterns. You have fires that create their own weather patterns, but you have known contributors. You have in, in California, no, systemic integrated wildfire plan. There is no statewide vegetation management plan. So for example, we have 120 million dead trees in PG&E's territory. Not, not all of them, in fact, many of them are not in our right of way. So we can do our job, but because there's no forest management, you have trees that can blow five miles into our lines and cause a fire. So there's also no massive zoning changes or building code changes. So we were forced to underwrite rebuilding paradise where our equipment did ignite a fire, which then took on a life of its own. It, we were forced to rebuild it and yet it's just burned again and will burn again. So you, you have these policies um, that encourage people to settle in high fire areas without any regard to human life and human plan. And these are tough political decisions. I mean, it's hard to say, no, you cannot build there. Uh, it's hard to close parks to, uh, to hiking and camping during high fire season, as they do in France, by the way, and they do in Australia, and they do in other countries yeah. that have really dealt with those impacts. So it's a combination of factors. Uh, I, I think it can get better. I think it's really up to the state of California to, to make a commitment to fixing the issues that they are um, strong contributors to. No, yeah. no utility can, can function in a state that won't deal with its own land management issues. Yeah. I mean, this is a very broad question, but it sounds like you're saying democracy can solve this, right? People are upset. They're going to choose the guy who... Who's gonna who's gonna fix it? 
and 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 then you know the politics is the problem. Okay, a few issues, but but the, the, if the main barrier is political, that's that's solvable through the ballot box. It's solvable through the ballot box if people understand the issues. Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, you know, if you're a single mother of three uh, trying to put food on the table, and the headline says, you know, your utility is solely at fault, you know. Do you have time to spend time thinking about that? You don't. So yeah. I think what we need is honest leadership. But I think that's true, frankly, in every aspect of our lives in the United States at this point. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, everyone thinks their industry is particularly complicated. And I think the power sector is. It's one of those things where you go to an election and, and the, the, the campaigns are so far removed from the level of detail you need to be making decisions on, you know, I'm going to ban fracking or I'm going to build 30% of renewables and my opponent's going to build 20% of renewables. And, and it seems like in the power sector more than in others. And, and the committing to 30% rather than 20% renewables is problematic, particularly if, if the politician then says we're going to procure it just directly, you know, outside of the market or, or something like that. It, it does seem to be one in which bureaucrats have a very big role in making important decisions around you know the grid code and very detailed very detailed policies unlike maybe in in, in some other industries can we talk about um your time at FERC so uh, so you were you I mean that's come across loud and clear you were a champion of mark part of your remit was you know Nora please please get some markets functioning in US power. Which do you think is the best functioning US power market at the moment? Texas, absolutely. Okay. And ironically, that's the one with no FERC control, I suppose. Do you think those two things are correlated? No, I, I, I really don't. I think it's, first of all, it's one state. So it, it was easier to manage. You have you know, yeah. a limited number of stakeholders. Whereas when you have multi-state uh, multi markets, you've got an infinite number of stakeholders. And that's another, I think, difference between the US and Europe. You have stakeholders, you have consumer advocates and environmental advocates, but in the US, you've got, you've got multiple people with vested interests and very different agendas and you get to the FERC where they have to reconcile these differences in 13 state, 20 state markets. Yeah. And it becomes increasingly complicated uh, to do so. It also, again, takes independence. It's why, why we've had independent commissions, which I think are very important. You cannot make uh, political decisions on long-term investment needs and long-term infrastructure needs. And ultimately, and, and this seems rather cynical, but infrastructure and particularly energy infrastructure is about economic development and economic development that affects people's lives. So as we become less and less disciplined in terms of data-driven decisions, uh, we add costs and, and ultimately we continue to add costs and we create vulnerabilities, uh, which we see, we see now. Uh, California has resource adequacy issues, even 20 years after their first crisis, which was not just about flawed markets, but was about resource adequacy. We have the same situation. So 
Uh, I think I think it's really important for FERC to be independent. They've been more political in this administration than in any other uh, that any of us can remember. And that's unfortunate because when you start relying on short-term political direction for long-term investment, you end up, again, either driving away investment, which has plenty of other places to go, um, or increasing the cost of capital. And I don't think people have made that connection. We need to do a better job at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. We're almost at, a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at an election in the US now. What do you see as the biggest differences between Donald Trump and Joe Biden's platforms going into the election? What are the, what are the, what are the really key issues for you and how the power sector evolves in the US in the, in the long term? Well, I think the I think the Biden platform is forward looking. It recognizes the dramatic changes that we need to deal with, both in terms of environment, but in terms of structure and sustainability uh, and long term best interests. I think the uh, Trump administration is backward looking to looking to preserve what is a clearly antiquated business model. It's it's a mystery to me. Uh, why people don't recognize that the success of our economy is based on businesses being able to change and respond to change and take advantage of change rather quickly. But the thought that we are preserving old business models, that we're preserving coal uh, as a resource is is just unbelievable to me. So I think there are dramatic differences I think ultimately we need federal leadership, although you know we are we are 50 states. I think we need leadership that will coordinate the policies in order to get affect the best outcome. And I think the Biden campaign has been clear on that. Where, where do you think climate change is an issue as an issue at this U.S. election? It feels to me from the outside that it's it's a long way down the list of voters preferences, whereas in, in, in a lot of other markets, in a lot of other countries, it's kind of probably one, two or three ahead of healthcare, ahead of law and order, uh, you know, probably not quite where the economy is. Where, where do you see it in the pecking order of issues, this, this federal election? I, you know, once you cut through the noise and the nonsense, yeah, uh, I, I, think yeah. it's, I think it's further up there than people think. Right now, people are frightened and confused but I think when you talk to thinking people who care and, and, and are familiar with the issues, I think climate change is right up there. I think it's far more important. And certainly, certainly for the, the upcoming generations, it is absolutely, you know, one or two on the list. Once you cut through the fear and all the, all the craziness that's going on, um, I, I think people are not paying attention to that. As a recovering Republican, I thought they missed the boat 20 years ago when it was becoming clearer and clearer that it was an issue of importance to people in terms of their legacy, in terms of the impacts that they could already see. And now, it, it you know, if you're thoughtful, it could not be clearer that whether you want to call it climate change, whether, you know, if we're pretending science doesn't exist, something is happening and we do know that the humans can affect outcomes. And... Uh, if you put it in that context and then really maybe even add some science, um, I think the path is clear and I think people understand that. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. Can, can you see a time this century when the US economy hits net zero? The science tells us that we need to be at um, net zero globally by 2075 to get to two degrees warming. Do you, can you see the US economy getting there by the end of the century? Under, under the right leadership, uh, I, I can. But I also think we need to expand our thinking. I think it's not going to be a dictate from above, although I'd love to see a carbon tax that is based on reality and not a bunch of special deals in, con uh, mm. in Congress. But I think we need to start including things like transportation, uh, materials, yeah. uh, ability to get better data. We make decisions on very important things with literally no data. I also think we need better uh, and, and greater investment and business leadership. I was surprised to learn that of all the big pension funds, uh, both public and private, they uh, invest less than 10% in climate change technologies. Now there's a different risk profile perhaps, um, but I think it's really important to put more money towards innovation because I don't think that necessarily comes from government. I think we mm -hmm. need to get a better path uh, to commercializing and, and perhaps government can play a better role than that, a bigger role than that. But I think we need to expand our thinking. And I've always been amused, and I, I have to say amused in a very sad way, um, when governors started standing up and, you know, we're going to get to 20% renewables and 30% renewables and 40% renewables. Of course, they're not going to be there in any time frame where mm. they get measured on the that. So I'm, I'm very cautious about promises, but I think we absolutely can do it. We just need to think bigger. It's not just about renewable energy, which is important, but um, there are a lot of other things that are contributors too. Grid, grid upgrades and grid technologies would make a huge difference that people just don't even think about. Yeah. The, the, the role of the private sector in R&D, again, it's a, you know, I, I don't think there's been a huge amount of it over the, well, I, I mean, in terms of driving down costs, the private sector's played a, played a really important role. But in terms of sort of fundamental R&D, it feels like there, is, there hasn't been as much. Uh, and, and Audrey Zillman, a re recent guest on the show, who you know, it's interesting that she's moving from being the system operator in Australia to um, to leading energy-focused work at X, which is the Alphabet company, uh, in a, in a few months' time to do exactly that. So I suspect she's seen she's seen the need for private sector innovation there as well. And they've actually been at that a long time. They, they just the the they don't want to be regulated and I don't blame them. But I think you see an increasing amount of investment from private family offices. There are several yeah. funds that have emerged. But again, we need, we need to get these big funds um, to get with the program. And we need to encourage, I, I think there is business leadership. I think Walmart, who doesn't get much credit for it, has been doing this for 15 years. Google certainly has, Microsoft has. Uh, I, I think the leadership is there. We need to encourage them to move forward. And, and they, they can influence, I think, public policy thinkers in a way that perhaps um, uh, the rest of us can't. One other of my observations on that is, I mean, I've seen a number of innovators who have come up with really interesting technologies. I'm not best placed to decide how useful they are, but who absolutely tear their hair out when it comes to deployment because 
they're selling to a monopolist or selling to a monopsonist. Um, you know, if you have a technology that can Im improve the grid, you need to talk to the SO. And these are t typically very conservative, typically slow moving. You know, they're in the firing line if the lights go out. Um, and I, th I think to some extent it's the market structure and having a monopolist network that slows down a lot of this innovation. I, you know, I've seen a few, a few examples of, of, of that where it's just, you know, if you're selling to multiple people, it's just much, much easier. It's a nightmare to sell to a monopolist yes. because they, they, you know, they're afraid to make decisions. They've been rewarded not to make decisions. It's not in their DNA. I mean, yeah. it, the industry attracts risk averse people. There, if we created performance based metrics, um, mm. that rewarded people for doing that and rewarded people for making decisions and allowed them to make mistakes. It's not as if you're deploying these technologies on such a massive scale that you're going to have a blackout. Yeah. Um, there's a way to test them. Experiment. But yeah. Yeah. There's, this is where regulators could play a better role, a bigger role. And unfortunately, one of the challenges is regulators tend themselves to have grown up particularly at state reg commissions in that commission. And, yeah. and often they're there because they're really brilliant in many cases, but risk averse themselves. So we need to kind of break that log jam and get some better education because you and I can pick up the phone and call anybody and get educated. Unfortunately, they can't. So uh, I, I think there's a better, there are ways to fix that. It's not, there are many intractable problems, but that's not one of them if we chose to do it. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Now I'd like to change gear. So, so to conclude the discussion, I want to present you with a few concepts in the energy transition and ask you if you think they're overrated or underrated. You should feel free to give a one-word answer or or to elaborate if you if you feel feel like it. Um, so the first concept is the ability of major oil and gas companies to transition to clean energy. Now, you know, we've seen BP's share price uh, as I speak is, is at sort of 25 year lows after they've announced their transition strategy. Uh, part of that is just COVID and the low oil price rather than the, rather than the strategy. Um, we've just seen next era uh, in, uh, in the US eclipse ExxonMobil's market cap. Um, next era being, a, being a, a, a renewables company. Do you think the oil and gas company's ability to transition to clean energy is overrated or underrated? I suspect it's underrated. Okay. What gives you faith in, in them? I think they've got the internal capacity, engineering mm -hmm. capacity. They have, at this point, sufficient capital to do that. I yeah. think they have been investing, by the way, in clean technology for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, they're now, I think, particularly if we get a carbon tax, will be at a tipping point where it's in their best interest to leverage that. But they definitely have the intellectual and financial capital. And I think the markets and governments are responding uh, with public policies that make it less attractive for them to resist. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So second concept I, I want to present to you uh, is long run targets for energy companies. So we've seen BP uh, say it's going to be net zero by 2050. RWE, the German utility, has done similar things. Uh, we've had a Texan utility recently saying they're going to be out of coal by 2027. Do you think these sorts of long-run targets, well beyond the tenure of, of your average CEO, are overrated or underrated? 
I think they're overrated unless they have metrics with them that you can see and measure. Yeah. I, I, under it, it's easy to say I'm out of coal. I can measure that, and I believe that. But just these broad, we're going to do this without any specific plan, I, I'm not a believer, just as yeah. I don't believe the governors when they wave the flag. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The third concept is, and it relates to your point about government picking winners and creating vulnerability. Um, so there's been a lot of talk post-COVID of green stimulus. Um, so do you think green stimulus as opposed to normal stimulus is overrated or underrated? Probably overrated because it depends on the execution. Mm -hmm. So you can, you can throw a lot of money at a problem and not fix the problem. I yeah. think we've got, we've got huge examples of that in every sector. Mm -hmm. So I, I would worry, I don't object to it, but I think it's overrated unless you have a clear path of execution and expectations. Yeah, it's not the greenness that makes it good in a, in, in a sense. Exactly. Uh, it might obscure the, the issue. Um, final one, and I think I know the answer to this, Nora, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, the role of markets in driving the energy transition, do you think that's overrated or underrated? I think it's grossly underrated and misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. That, that was what I thought you would say. <laughs> I, I got that impression. Uh, and that I, I, that I one I can do in, in two words. Mostly yeah. I'm Irish and I can't speak in two words. But that <laughs> <one>. <laughs> Wonderful. Nora, that's a natural time to finish. Um, they were wonderful insights into the energy transition into the US. Uh, so Nora Brownell, thank you so much for taking the time to speak. John, thanks for listening. I'm going to change the world one way or the other. That was John Federson, Aurora's co-founder and chief executive, talking to Nora Mead Brownell, founder of SB Energy Solutions. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.